The first thing they say when I tell them, for instance, like, you know, I can't drink alcohol or all these things, you know, they say, oh, why? Why can't you do that? I say, oh, I had cancer. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, they immediately apologize. You know, the reality is it's like, it's not their fault. They didn't cause me to have cancer. But equally, I think in a weird sense, I'm, I'm somewhat grateful because it provided that level of clarity and insight, which, you know, otherwise I, I might not have had until much later in life. And I think, you know, there's a famous Zen Cohen that says, each man has two lives and the second begins when he realizes he only has one. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Hey everyone, welcome to our final episode of the year. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Withers. Chris is the founder of Clickit with an enterprise technology stack. Clickit helps restaurants, bars, and hotels become far more efficient in their day-to-day operations by providing an all-in-one operating system for them to manage their key and core services previously VP at Gojek and the first APAC head of growth for Uber Eats, Chris leads a team across APAC, servicing thousands of brands and millions of orders every single year. Hi, Chris. So nice to finally meet you today. I don't know too much about you. I've never met you in person either. So I'm pretty excited about the chat today. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. So with everybody that we have on the podcast, we always start with asking them about their childhood. So could you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Where did you grow up? Was it in Australia? Yeah, for sure. So I come from a town called the Gold Coast. It's about an hour north of Sydney by plane. You know, it's a beautiful city. It's a tourist city full of beaches. It's an amazing kind of place. And especially, you know, if you're a young family to grow up in. But unfortunately, the Gold Coast is a slow place. So, uh, you know, dreaming bigger and better, I, I decided to eventually leave there. So the Gold Coast is where you're from? Yep, exactly. Okay. So you grew up in the Gold Coast. And until when were you living there? Did you move to Sydney earlier in your childhood or only for university or later in high school? No, so I stayed on the Gold Coast all the way up until I graduated high school. So age 16, 17. And then I ended up leaving home. I'm moving an hour north to Brisbane to attend the University of Queensland, where I, I studied there full time and lived on campus. Oh, okay. So you moved to Brisbane for university at University of Queensland, and then after that, stayed in Sydney, I'm guessing, for your first job? Exactly. Yeah. My first job took me down to Sydney. Is this a usual path most people in Australia take when they want to work at a company in the city? They move out after for their first job or is it usually later in their career when they move to let's say Sydney? Probably a lot later in their career that they would move. I think like the situations I was moved under was pretty strange. You know, for context, I actually was, you know, studying full time. I was studying economics and law at the University of Queensland. And, you know, my parents at the time had told me I needed a job. And so, you know, I applied for what was seemingly like a, a quite vague kind of role. It was you know, looking for someone who was, you know, driven, hungry, ambitious, wanted to learn. I thought those were all like characteristics that, you know, were pretty descriptive of me as a young, brash kind of like, you know, 21-year-old. And so I applied to this job, but I wasn't sure, you know, who the employer was. And weirdly, Amanda, at the time, I ended up stumbling into a job bar, the sort of infamous ride-sharing company. And so that was phenomenal for lots of different reasons, but at the time was actually a pretty interesting move because, you know, Uber back in 2015, which is when I joined the company, was technically, I don't want to use the phrase illegal, but operated in a, a legal gray space. And so that caused a lot of problems for me at university while I was trying to study, finish and complete my law degree. Because in Australia, you know, when you study the law and you want to become a you know practicing solicitor or a barrister, what has to happen is at the end of your law degree, Amanda, another lawyer has to say, hey, you know, I think Chris is a good citizen, is a good guy, and will make a a great lawyer. And unfortunately for me, you know, I had no hope of passing the ethics because I was effectively propping up a quote-unquote illegal taxi company. And, you know, I was working and studying 
time. And it was during that process, actually, that I was offered the role to transfer to Sydney. And so I actually hadn't even finished my university degree. I was still studying remotely at the time. And that's when I moved down to Sydney to become one of the founding members of what we called at the time the the Australian New Zealand Regional Operations Team. Oh, so you're actually working at Uber while taking your degree. And did you graduate from university when you moved to Sydney and took the job at Uber? Or did you actually not complete your degree? No, I completed it. So, and this is one thing I tell everyone who's young and, you know, they have big dreams and aspirations about technology. I think like one of the worst things that Silicon Valley has done is inculcate this mindset that, you know, you can drop out and you can be exceptional and you can hustle and you can do all these things. I think that you definitely can, but I still think that, you know, if you're enrolled in a university and you're studying a degree and you're with a lot of peers who good for you and they help your growth, then you should really do everything you can possible to complete that degree. And so while it was very, very painful for me to complete my degree remotely, I had extra workload because I couldn't attend compulsory tutorials. In the end, you know, that proved to be a very, because then I still graduated with two degrees and, you know, not that I care too much about making my parents happy, but, you know, they obviously were because the five and a half years I spent at university eventually equated to two pieces of paper. So you're actually working at Uber at the same time and then managing both, which I guess is really hard because you're studying two degrees and then have this one job at a startup, which is probably taking a lot of your time too, compared to the typical job. Yeah, 100%. You know, like when I joined Uber, we were doing you know, several thousand trips a week. And within three to four months of working at the company, we were doing several hundred thousand trips. And so it was really just like a machine of scale that I hadn't ever. I was addicted to it. I loved it. And and I loved working exceedingly hard. And I guess that's probably like what then set my work ethos up then for the rest or remainder of my career. But yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting juggling act. That's for sure. I think it's great that you share that you don't have to drop out just because it's what you see in the movies and everything. And you show that it was actually possible to juggle not just one, but two degrees and the startup job. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, you know, something that we'll probably touch on later, you know, I think that there's a good lesson here. And that's, you know, when a person's why is clear, they can bear almost anyhow. And I think for me, you know, I had had work experience in corporate and places like Ernst & Young and UBS, the investment bank. And I had really realized that like those places were not for me. And so, you know, I kind of, found what I loved doing it, which was, you know, working on really difficult problems, solving them, scaling them, and obsessing over them. And so I knew that if that's what I wanted to continue, I had to make all things work. And so, you know, when you're faced with that kind of, I guess it's a dilemma, just figure things out really quick. So when you were studying and working at Uber at the same time, when you're applying to the job, did you actually know it was Uber or did it have some other name? I didn't know that it was Uber. It was just listed as like a generic startup. It was like, hey, come apply for this generic kind of startup. And, you know, I think you'll have a good time. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Like sounds, you know, somewhat enticing. And it was only until like I turned up and then I was like, oh, this is Uber. But Uber was still very early back then. You know, the company had only really been in operation for three years at that point. And so in Australia, we didn't know much about it, except that it was illegal. And then when you were sort of completing your law degree, you mentioned that you have to complete this ethics test. Like somebody has to vouch for your ethics, I guess. Yep. In that case, can you graduate even though you didn't pass the ethics test? You just have the degree, but you can't practice at all? Correct. So yeah, I have the degree, but I cannot become a practicing solicitor in Australia, I would need to pass the ethics committee and then do something called practical legal training or PLT under the supervision of like a law firm and a bunch of seniors and supervisors. And, you know, I don't think our boat is like fully sailed, right? There's always time to find in in life, but I don't, I would be a a good fit for the profession (laughs) these days. Did you want to study law from the beginning or was it something your parents wanted you to study or is it something that's common in Australia to take law? Yeah, I think it was definitely a product they want. My parents are both doctors and initially want me, but I had them pursuing that as a profession. And so the sort of, you know, the closest, I guess, next alternative, if they grasped that was really the law. And so, you know, 
they said I was an argumentative child. I like to argue a lot and I'd probably be pretty good at that if that was my full-time job. So they just kind of like nudged me towards that direction. But very quickly, I learned that like I was not a good fit for law school. You know, I think that I'm incredibly grateful having studied law because I think law is phenomenal in how it teaches you to think about problems and to rationalize by first principles rather than analogy. But I also think that, you know, law is a very static career that requires the kind of, you know, fixed application of set rule sets to problems and and to pattern match. And I hate those things. I love to build and I love to like think creatively and to solve. And none of those things are, are really available to you in practicing law until you become a, a very seasoned old judge on the bench. And so you talked about working at Uber. I think you were there for about mm, three years or so. What would you say was your most impactful time there? Like at least the most impactful to you and your career? Was there any specific project you had or specific problem the business had at a time that really shaped you? Yeah, I think for me, you know, the real turning point at Uber was when Tomaso Rodriguez, who is now the current CEO of Talibat, visited the Sydney office and, you know, he was tasked with setting up the first sort of strike team to launch Uber Eats, which, you know, in 2016 was a brand new product. It basically, it only existed as an experiment in North America. It hadn't gone global. And so, you know, there were a couple of key leaders in the business at the time, predominantly a guy named Alan Penn, who, you know, is a great guy and and certainly, you know, someone who who I continue to this day to look up to a lot, you know, Alan and Tommaso were, were putting together this kind of strike team. And so at that time, I had worked in the Australian ride-sharing business for almost about 18 months, and I was I was pretty bored of it, Amanda. You know, ride-sharing, I think, is a very interesting business. It's a, it's a two-place. You have supply, you have demand. Mentally, it's a lot like kind of, you know, taxi 2.0. And so this idea that there was this kind of food, business model that was a three-sided marketplace involving, you know, couriers, merchants, and customers really exciting. And so, you know, I basically did everything I could to try and impress Tomazo and to join his team as, as the kind of head of growth for, for APAC. And, you know, in the first couple of months in that team, it was like nothing else. We flew to every single major market in, in Southeast and North Asia, from Tokyo to Taipei, from Melbourne to Manila, you know, gathering requirements requirements, figuring out how we were going to launch these different markets, acquiring restaurants, talking to couriers. And so I think when I look back on my career, that that's a, a time which, you know, it was very foundational and it shaped a lot about the way I think about what is possible. Because, you know, there you had a team, a team of at that time it was like four or maybe even five of us. And, you know, we were managing the the sequential and, and parallel launch of, you know, tens of different markets across the world, right? And it was a really, really special time. So you're saying that you initially weren't supposed to be part of the team, but you sort of tried to find your own way to get in. So how did you impress him? So, you know, I think at Uber, people had, you know, the Uber Australia business was very notorious for exporting a lot of fantastic across the world. Product managers who were on the first versions of things like Uber Pool and our Surge product, they had from the Australian news market. So people knew us to be like a, that's what we would say, like a feeder for, for talent. And, you know, as part of that process, I had worked a lot on the automation of driver onboarding, which is a very complicated problem. Although it sounds very simple, like, you know, driver wants to drive for Uber, they need to like submit a driver's license and stuff like that. There were a whole lot of different sequential actions. So I'd spent a lot of time thinking about that problem and, and automating it at scale for the Australian New Zealand market. And so based on that, I was able to call Alan and, and call Tommaso. And, you know, I just basically said to them, hey, I don't really care what role you give me. I would be happy with anything, but I need like a new problem set to obsess over. And food delivery seems so incredibly interesting to me. I'd seen what was happening in China with the rise of Meichuan Dianping, and I was like, I need to be involved in this space somehow. Yeah, fortunately, me, both of them, you know, Travis Kalanick, the the founder of Uber, he didn't really like Uber Eats. Really? (laughs) Which is somewhat ironic now, sort of exceedingly large position in his now current company, CSS. But yeah, back then, he didn't like it at all. And so a lot of people didn't want to. And so maybe that was also another stroke of luck that happened where, you know, I'd found something or 
some area that people weren't interested in. And I decided that that's where I wanted to build value. And so when you actually joined the team at Uber Eats, what was the biggest challenge you had personally? I'm guessing that this is also a very different kind of role or skill set from what you needed in your other roles at Uber. But if I'm wrong, you can let me know I'm wrong. No, no, no. I think it was definitely a different skill set. And the the single largest skill set, and it's a skill set which I I lean heavily on today, is the ability to work cross-culturally in Amanda. I think, you know, I had to work with people in teams in Japan, in Korea, in Hong Kong, in Indonesia, in Thailand. And, you know, Southeast Asia, I think broadly is, in my mind, it's it's probably the most vibrant region in the world. But I think what's fascinating when it comes to, to technology and to startups you know, founders themselves here are very guilty of it. They say, hey, you know, my total addressable market is Southeast Asia. It's the big phrase, S-E-A. But the reality is, Amanda, if you if you culturally go, you know, deep into these different markets and understand the problems and then pull yourself back out and think about how to solve those problems at scale across cities as, as, as wide and varied as Medan to Manila, then you're just going to fail or you're just going to build a business that's only Indonesia specific or only Vietnam specific or only Thailand specific. And so I think like what I had to learn very, very quickly while at Uber Eats was one, how can I, you know, work with my international colleagues? Two, how can I build trust with them and get them to trust me? And then three, how can I look at, I guess, a broad pool of problems different markets, and then use very kind of ruthless prioritization to rapidly understand which of those I could actually solve at scale. And so, yeah, it was a big, steep, steep learning curve, but one I'm eternally grateful to Alan and Tommaso for, because now at ClickIt, you know, in, in less than two years, we've scaled to 10 countries. And I think that there are very, very few SaaS businesses in this region who, who could claim something similar. But I'm actually surprised you mentioned that because I think before you joined the Uber Eats team, weren't you already in a sort of APAC role, like moving from an A and Z focused role to an APAC role? Or is your emphasis more on like when you moved to this Uber Eats role, it was even more international than the prior one and required even more like, I don't know, localization? Yeah, correct. So when I moved into that Uber Eats role, that was really where the localization piece kind of kicked off. I think like before that, Yeah, I mean, sure, I was working with kind of like global stakeholders, but nowhere near the level of then localization that I had to adapt and and become flexible and comfortable around when I was in in the role for Uber Eats. And what do you think was the most difficult moment for you in your time at Uber? Was it difficult in terms of like a personal sense of like personal growth, I need to grow my skill set? Or was there a really difficult challenge in the business that you were having a difficult time solving? Yeah. So for me, the work was never a problem. I, I constantly wanted to sort of, you know, immerse myself in it and solve harder and harder problems at greater and greater scale. The hardest time at Uber, and I'm sure if you if you have the opportunity to interview other UberX APAC folks, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing. The event with Grab was very, very difficult. The merger event in 2018. And, you know, I think just on record, you know, Anthony and Tenoy Ling are, you know, they're amazing founders and they have built an amazing. The real challenge here is, you know, on Uber, there were 600 people who for years, some of them have, you know, faced criticism from their family, from their parents, from their partners for propping up this kind of company. And overnight, it was just like an asset sale. And so all of that had just been, you know, it was like, You'd been fighting a war for years and then all of a sudden, you know, the white flag is just raised and, you know, a soldier finds themselves without purpose, right? And, you know, there were 600 of those people. My that was, you know, I was, I guess some would describe my role as fortunate in the sense that, you know, I was part of the deal team that was tasked with rolling over, you know, all of Uber's assets to to Grab. And, you know, I really value that time because I got to meet some amazing people at Grab who I'm still in touch with today. But there was also a lot of sadness at that period because, you know, there were all these people in local teams who I had worked with day and night tirelessly who then found themselves kind of out of a job. And for some of them, they were fortunate. They found homes at Grab and many of them have since gone on to build phenomenal careers there at what is arguably, you know, one of the best companies in this region. But for a lot of them, they also didn't and they felt sad and betrayed. And, you know, for some of them, they even got to go back home when they necessarily didn't want to. You know, a lot of Americans, a lot of Australians, 
a lot of Filipinos who had found themselves at the sort of at the Singapore HQ, and then all old hey, it's all over. You now need to leave. And so I think that was my first big lesson. You know, I look back on my time at Uber. I was someone who had drunk a lot of the Kool Aid, as they say. I think in startup land, and I think you know that moment of the 2018 merger was really when the penny dropped for me that you know this is a corporation supply. You know, at that time, we're talking, you know, mid-2018, Uber was on its rightful sort of path of ascension to being a grown-up company. And, you know, the realities of a grown-up company are that you make business decisions. And sometimes in the interest of shareholders, you need to make really hard ones. And those have costs, both in dollars and cents, but importantly, they also have people costs as well. So do you think the biggest pain there was because people like yourself would tie like your identity with the company or was it more like I want to pave my future with the company's future what kind of sentiment do you think it it was more like yeah yeah I think that's a really good question Amanda I for me you know at the time I was like what 23 24 I think you know my was intrinsically tied up in Uber it was the thing that I like had devoted pretty much every waking hour of every waking moment too. Some people, again, I'm sure others on your podcast will tell you that this type of obsession is like unhealthy. I'm inclined to agree with them, but by the same token, you know, there are a bunch of sort of, you know, counter critics, Elon Musk included, not that I think he's the, you know, the shining beacon here, but if you're going to, you know, outwork people when you're going to sit there and work 100 hours a week, you'll outwork every single one of your competitors, right? And you'll grow at a phenomenal rate. And so when you do that, the sort of trade-off there is that, yeah, you become intrinsically tied up in the company. So I think there was a lot of sadness both individually, but then also there was some group sadness as well, you know, that that these decisions kind of like had to be made. And I think it was difficult, but at the same time, a valuable lesson. And how do you take that lesson to like click it now? I think I've seen some posts about you and the company. I think you have like like a very clear idea of the kind of people you want to work with based on the posts that you make. But apart from that, I think you also highlight a lot about your team and the kind of support they give you and the kind of environment you guys have. Company culture is like a very strange thing, Amanda. And I think that, you know, I was recently asked by another founder, a friend of mine, he kind of said, hey, you know, like what does culture mean to you? And I think that, you know, you could ask that question of a lot of different founders and you'll get lots of different answers. Some of them you'll get the textbook answer. Some of them you'll get the consultant answer. Some of them maybe you'll get like a real I think for me, you know, culture is the set of values, you know, especially the leadership at the top that bring people together, right? And, you know, what's interesting is there's a lot of startup talk about things like company culture. You know, I was fortunate enough to spend a little bit of time in the military, just in a reservist kind of capacity. But the way that, you know, we company culture is a lot the way they talk about things like morale. And, you know, I think it's important to understand like what sort of or value system is at a company. You know, for Click It, my, it's both a hope. It's that I want to try and take all of the best parts about Uber's culture in the sense that, you know, meritocracy is privileged, you know, people are constantly seeking truth and, and finding answers and, and working hard and, you know, are there for each other. And I think that that was always great. While at the same time, I want to minimize all of Uber's, the bad parts of its culture. Um, and there were some pretty bad parts of, of Uber's culture, you know, in terms of, you know, how it could become toxic, how it became very combative, how it was very paranoid, all of those sorts of things. And so, you know, at ClickIt, I think what's important for us is the reality is like we're in a space that's like exceedingly competitive. You know, we've got a lot of phenomenal companies that sort of want to do things that we do. And the reality is ClickIt does a lot of things. And so we end up, you know, butting heads with a lot of different companies. And so I guess like the, the important thing from a perspective is that, you know, we're constantly looking out for our customers, constantly listening to what they want and, and building for that future. But at the same time, you know, we're doing so in a way that that sees us ruthlessly prioritize and execute against our goals and where we need. And so, you know, I think the type of people then that that are at ClickIt are those who who really want to work hard. Really honest on this podcast, you know, the types of people that I like are probably you know somewhat a lot like me. They have chips on their shoulder. They want to prove things. 
they you know think that they're destined for more than where they are and more often than not they can be difficult characters to manage i certainly was a difficult character to manage at uber but i think fundamentally they can make phenomenal employees and not just employees they can make phenomenal teammates and so you know i'm constantly on the lookout for those people have you ever heard of like people saying that people who are difficult characters as like team members or employees can sometimes make really good founders do you think that's true i think it's true 100% and i think that you know the reality is like i'm in a, a somewhat unique position i think to commentate on this because like i am a solo founder so you know i don't have any other co-founders and you know i definitely fit that mold of skill to manage and and probably a lot of times difficult to kind of get along with i think that you know that sort of like founder archetype is someone who is largely combative who genuinely believes that they can well then do a lot of different things and you know it's one of the early questions i ask in the clicker interview process i usually try and figure out what type of character someone is you know it's a fantastic paper you can find online and you know it's discussed at length i think probably in the hard thing about hard things by by ben horowitz but you know this difference between like pioneers and settlers and one of the early questions i ask in the clicker interview process is i i usually like to say hey what do you want to do and people are like oh like i want to do i want to learn sequel and i want to like apply that to build tables and dbs and i want to and it's like hang on like what do you personally want to do like in life and you know it's interesting i get a good mix i get some who say i'm just here to learn how to be a founder like i want to look at you and i want to see the mistakes you make and i want to see the things you do well and the things you don't and i want to learn from that and at some future point i want to apply those lessons and make you know a bunch of my own decisions that will inevitably result in wins or losses and then there's also like another healthy component who are like you know i am here to learn and like i want to support but really you know i'm more about kind of the overall vision of the company or what the company actually does right and those are more that kind of like settler rather than pioneer type and i think it's important that you have a mix because if you don't and you have just like you know you have a whole load of pioneers you know i think you're going to get excellent kind of trajectory early on but very very quickly a lot of cultural problems and you know it's the responsibility of the founder and the management team to really kind of piece that together and and make sure that that's measured out appropriately when you were initially hiring people from your team did you intentionally try to hire people this way or was this something that you only learned later on i think i definitely intentionally did it i think like some of our you know most of our early employees in our first market the philippines i think are all very entrepreneurial characters i think that they have that kind of spirit inside of them and you know they have a lot to learn and they would also agree you know where they hear on this call they would i'm sure agree that they also have a lot to learn but fundamentally you know i look at their growth even in the last 12 months alone amanda and you know i'll, I'll sometimes say this to them and i'll say you know were you sitting at a, a different startup let's say in the philippines or, or anywhere else across southeast asia would you have gotten the same level of growth and you know what i would like to hear is always no because that means that we're growing fast here at clicket and i think then the the secondary question i always ask is yeah and do you think you would get this at a corporate and you know the resounding answer is almost always no but you know i don't think i you know over time i i've lacked that requirement a bit about that entrepreneurial kind of spirit because again as i mentioned right you know you, you don't want too much of that you need to keep a balance and when you're building clicket What was the biggest challenge you had after the first year? Because I guess like in the first year most of the time, at least for me, I kind of knew what I was doing more at the beginning, but then I think after the first year I was like, okay, wait, these are like a lot harder than I expected. So what was your biggest challenge after the first year of Clickit? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest challenge after the first year is always whether or not you have the right people to achieve what you want to achieve. And sometimes Amanda the the hard reality of that situation is you don't and so you need to correct for those mistakes. Out of cricket my best friend joined me in that journey and he joined the company as uh you know he was our first CSM like our customer success manager he was from hospitality you know he's in kitchens he's passionate about food he is amazing at food and you know he joined me on this tech company journey and you know i asked of him i said hey you know you're going to learn a lot you're going to be really uncomfortable but you know it's just part of the process and you know after you won eventually you know at some point he kind of turned around and said hey this is just like not not meant for me and you know that's hard 
because when it's someone who, you know, you start at day one and, you know, they're also your best friend, it's quite difficult to really stare that decision in the face. But I guess the the thing that made that much better was that he had the courage to do so and that he trusted me enough, right, to, to come to me and say, you. hey, yeah, exactly. You know, I think that in many respects takes more courage than sticking around because, you know, he was able to admit to himself, you know, I want to do something different. I think my skill sets or, or my passions are, are actually somewhere else and this might be yours and it is yours, but it is not mine. And so I think after year one, it's really about, you know, doing an assessment of, of whether or not you have the right people to get where you want to go. And, you know, for every founder and every company, where they want to go is very different. And certainly as funding environments change in macro, you know, at destination probably. And so, you know, evaluating that I think is always the job of the founder. Earlier, you talked about being a solo founder. Was that a conscious decision you made at day one? Like, I'm going to be a solo founder for this journey? Or were you initially looking for a co-founder? No, I was always going to be a solo founder. I've seen the co-founder relationship go bad too many times, and and I've dealt with the fallout personally. So for me, I was always going to, you know, sort of go down the route as as the kind of solo founder. And obviously, to anyone listening, makes things very, very difficult, especially you know if you're trying to raise money. I think you know for investors and, and venture capitalists, having you know a co-founding team that is is unified and strong is is a very good signal. Whereas having one individual, it's tricky. But, you know, I am fortunate to be surrounded by incredible investors who believe in me. And so, you know, they gave me that opportunity and I'll, uh, you know, continue to let them down. You actually beat me to my follow-up question. So in terms of being a solo founder, you already mentioned it's hard to raise. So how did you manage to convince them that you were going to be okay as a solo founder? Because I think there are even some investors who are actually clear about saying, like, I don't think we are interested in investing because you're a solo founder. Yeah. I think, you know, fundamentally, Amanda, it's going to come down to your character and you as an individual. I think, you know, there are lots and lots of of great companies that have been built by co-founding teams. There are also, you know, lots of great companies out there who have the solo founder who, you know, it's that kind of like, you know, it's that Mark Zuckerberg type story. And I'm, I'm not suggesting for a second I am a character like that, but I think that, you know, it's about how you present the reasons for why you want to be a solo founder. And I think for me, you know, I was able to talk with these investors and many of them had known me before when I was working in, in other roles. You know, I had just seen this co-founder relationship sour and I had seen the fallout from that. And, and I just knew that I didn't want to deal with any of it. And so it's a sort of Damocles, right? That kind of like hangs over you as a solo founder. You know, you're, you're, you're always staring down the barrel of like, great, I don't need to get anyone else's approval to make this decision, unless you obviously like have a board where you've lost controlling interest, or you're staring down the other side of the, the equation, which is, oh man, there's a lot of responsibility on my back. And, you know, for some people, they want to share that load. And, and I think that that's the right call. For others, you know, if you think you can tolerate it, then, you know, take the leap and become the solo founder. Do you have any tips for people who are solo founders? I know that there are different kinds of difficulties around being a solo founder. And then, as you said, like there's a bigger weight left on just you. So if anyone's thinking of being a solo founder, what would you sort of caution them on? Yeah, I think, you know, I think this this advice like applies broadly to anyone. Looking to want to, like you know, wanting to become a founder, co-founder, starting a company, whatever. But I think it's expressly true for solo founders. You know, and I, I give this advice in business the same way I give it in you know your personal life, in love, in all these different things. I think you really need to understand if you're in love with it or in love with the idea of it. And you know, I think there are a lot of people out there, Amanda, that are in love with the idea of being the solo founder, of being the entrepreneur. They want that hero mythos. They want to be that person who's in the magazine, in the Deal Street Asia article, in the Tech in Asia article, being talked about on the airwaves. But the reality of the situation is like that might be like less than 1% of what that actually means. And so you need to be in love with it, not the idea of it, if you want to succeed. And if you're not, and you aren't ready to have that conversation with yourself, then you most certainly are not ready to become a solo founder. But I think you mentioned like the idea of it versus do you actually want it. Do you also mean like 
it would become a conflict if you want to be a founder because you want to make a lot of money. No, I don't think so. I think that, that, you know, a lot of people assume that like, you know, financial motive should be like frowned down upon or or whatever. I think, you know, if that's why you love entrepreneurship, you know, there's of, of innovative, you know, Warren Buffett and, and obviously, you know, Charlie Munger, who's, who's just recently passed away. You know, both those two guys were just phenomenal at making money and they just loved it. They were really good at it. And for some people out there, they're really good at making money and that's what they want to do. And so, as long as they're in love with, you know, with being the entrepreneur and all of comes with that, if the end result is money and that's what they're after, then yeah, likely they, you know, they'll make that work. If you're just in love with the idea of money and you're in love with the idea of driving around a Ferrari and flexing on TikTok and Instagram, then my advice would be you should probably become a drop shipper or a TikTok clipper. And, there are probably you know, other better ways that's a, to make money that are not as yeah, simple. <laughs> exactly. 100% Amanda. Like it's way less painful to do that. Nobody will, well, I'm sure someone will judge you, but you know, if money is the outcome and money is the objective, then there's much, much easier ways to do it than founding a company for most. So they also talked about having a chip on your shoulder and telling yourself that, you know, you want more than what you have now. Was that something you have been feeling for a long time, like since your childhood? Or is that something you developed only maybe in the middle or later part of your career? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it's definitely something that developed in childhood that got progressively more pronounced as time went on whether it was like university and then Uber and then these other jobs I'd worked at Gojek and these other kind of places. So, you know, I think for me, it's always been like an inherent personality trait, but I think over time, it's the intensity of that trait has heightened. You know, I think if you were to talk to me when I was 14 or 15, it probably wouldn't have been as severe as it certainly is now. But yeah, I think it definitely started when I was young. So before we had the podcast, you actually told me that, you know, you have a dark story or that it's not probably probably the most positive thing to share in a podcast. Could you share a bit about what you meant by that? Like, what are the things that you've been overcoming either in the last few years of building ClickIt or throughout your career? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to share. And I'm happy to share because I hope it raised awareness for these things. So earlier in this year in April, I was actually diagnosed with cancer. and so. I think that, you know, it's an interesting thing. I don't think you expect to be diagnosed with cancer when you're 29 years old. It's not something that you necessarily envisage for yourself. I certainly didn't. You know, I think as a solo founder, I'm more than used to that fair share of chaos, making decisions, rapid fire decisions, you know, decisions that have real consequences and ramifications. But to have the life universe in general then bestow me cancer was a pretty interesting one, Amanda. And so, you know, I think... The reason I, I wanted to check is that, check with you, you know, whether or not people wanted to hear this stuff is, is it ties back into that real idea about, you know, are you in love with it or are you in love with the idea of it, right? And I think that, you know, for a lot of people, when you have an event that really, you know, means you confront your own kind of mortality, you get into this position where you start actually really categorically examining a lot of different things in your life, where you're at, what makes you happy, what drives you, why you get out of bed every morning. And, you know, I think for me, Fundamentally, you know, there are a lot of people who they get a diagnosis like this and their whole life is, you know, they suddenly want to spend more time with family and they want to go traveling. They want to do all of these things. I just wanted to do the opposite. I even harder and prove even more that what we are building is something great. And so, you know, I guess very probably counter or contrarian to the narrative that exists out there about, hey, you know, work-life balance and, you know, health is wealth and all these different things, unequivocally tell you one of the things that almost certainly kept me alive was the constant pressure of the fact that I'm a solo founder at ClickIt and that I need to deliver. And so, you know, working relentlessly and tirelessly when you are suffering from cancer and undergoing, you know, at some times as in a row of chemotherapy, you know, that might seem to some people like utter madness. And to me, like I wanted to turn that into something that was normal, like a sense of normalcy, right? You know, and so I guess like for me, I look a lot at the kind of 
mostly echo chamber on a lot of these kind of platforms and what they talk about and what's important. And I think for a lot of people out there, you know, I think a lot of people, I'm talking like 99% of people, you know, you to really balance these things out and you do need to sit back and figure out what makes you happy. Is it going to be children? Is it going to be traveling? Is it reading books? Like what is it going to be? But for me, like this is it. And so, you know, I really believe in that kind of like that ethos about, you know, if I work 80 to 100 hours a week, I will outwork any competitor. And so, you know, that type of stuff, I thrive in it and I enjoy it, but it's certainly like not for everyone. And I think that, you know, the cancer stuff really made me reflect on that, but it also gave me, I think, like a lot of clarity that I'm doing the right and continuing this journey and continuing to push through against all. And so also deep in shit. So in terms of when you got the diagnosis, did it prompt a lot of like different kinds of thoughts in your head? Like, am I doing the right thing? Or was it immediately clear to you that, okay, knowing this, I know exactly what I want to do. And that is to keep working on my business. Or was that realization only something that came, I don't know, after a couple of weeks, after a couple of months? No, I think, I think interestingly, it was like almost immediate clarity. I think it was like a water droplet into a very still glassy pool. It like all the different ripples like made a lot of sense. And I, you know, what the knock-on effects of, of having a diagnosis like that would be. And then also equally, like what would be next couple of months, you know, we all sit around thinking that we're praying to different gods and we want different things. And we cry out in the sky when they don't answer us. But more often than not, you know, you ask for something and you'll receive a test that will grant it. And so, you know, I think for me, the way I kind of view things is like, if that's my lot in life, and if that's like what's have to, you know, that's has to happen, then this is just yet another test that I need to pass in order to get to the next level. And so it was a lot of clarity on my side, which I think was good. And yeah, I mean, you know, people, the first thing they say when I tell them, for instance, like, you know, I can't drink alcohol or all these things, you know, they say, oh, why? Why can't you do that? I say, oh, I had cancer. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, they immediately apologize. You know, the reality is it's like, it's not their fault. They didn't cause me to have cancer. But equally, I think in a weird sense, I'm, I'm somewhat grateful because it provided that level of clarity and insight, which, you know, otherwise I, I might not have had until much later in life. And I think, you know, there's a famous Zen Cohen that says, each man has two lives. And the second begins when he realizes he only has one. And so, like, I think that that really prompted for me, you know, what needed to happen. And it, it galvanized and, and, you know, gave me a lot of resolve in terms of then the months that were to come. So would you say that you actually grew the business more after the diagnosis? Was that something you saw? Yeah. I mean, 100%. And I've had, you know, I have the numbers to prove it. You know, I think, I think it's one of those things. You know, I, I didn't tell anyone at the business besides my general managers that I actually had cancer. I would dial into calls and, and wear a lot of hoodies. And, you know, when all my hair fell out, I said I was trying a new hairstyle. You know, there's a popular thing that that some of the, I think the kids are doing these days, you know, monk mode is something which people have, have thrown or bandied about. And I could kind of jokingly hide behind that for a little while. But yeah, I think, you know, fundamentally, we, we grew the business multiple times over and we continued delivery. And, you know, part of that process is I had to get up every single day and front the company. And there are, you know, tens of people across, you know, multiple different markets, you know, with Clickit's offices in Manila, in Dhaka, in Singapore, in Jakarta, all counting on me to stand firm and deliver orders. And, you know, if you're not going to be able to do that, then should you really be an entrepreneur? Should you be there, right? And, and I'm not saying that I have the answer for that. But for me, the answer was... No, if you can't get up out of bed and you can't do these things and you can't be there for the company, then you've chosen the wrong path to begin with. And so for me, it was like, yeah, I need to turn up each and every every day. Didn't matter how big the step that I took, how big it was, right? But it was important that I took a step. And some days that step was minuscule, centimeters. And on other days it was meters, right? But the fact that you get there and you take that step is, is actually what's important. So I'm wondering... After the diagnosis, I'm guessing there were days where it's a bit harder to work, right? And then there are some days that it's easier to manage to work at full capacity. So I'm wondering, do you think the business grew directly because of 
how many additional hours you work compared to before. Since you talked about, you know, working 80 hours, et cetera, would help you grow more because you're outworking the competitors? Or do you think it's not the hours in itself, but what you did with the hours that you spent at work or the messages or communication you would say in terms of what you told your team members? Yeah, like I think I think the quantity versus quality argument will constantly exist. Like when it comes to to you know startups, and there's a you know an absolute litany of people out there who will say, oh, but you know you just need to work smart, and you can still have all these hours in the day and, and do all these other different things. You know, fundamentally, I disagree like largely with that. I think like you know it depends on your mental frame of reference and and how you feel as an individual, but you can make almost every single hour productive. And certainly, you know, at an early stage startup, when you're at the pre-seed or the seed level, like there is a never ending list of problems that founders can be working on. And to be quite frank, you know, I find it remarkable that some founders like find the opportunity, like go on holidays and they're like hanging out in all these places. And, you know, their arguments are constantly things like, oh, you know, I'm doing this to become more creative or like find more inspiration. But like the reality is, is like, you know, you are not an artist, like you are not producing something that requires the, you know, the creative sort of, juices. To yeah, the, exactly. The 100%, the creative spirit, right? You know, like if these people were, were sculptors, or they were musicians, or they were doing these sorts of professions, I would understand it. But, you know, with the pre-seed and the seed, your single goal is to A, build a and B, find product market fit. And in that, you know, in that labyrinth, you are being constantly chased by the fact that you may run out of money. And, you know, that's why I do find it kind of remarkable that people are able to say these things like, oh, I stepped away from the business for all this time and that was important for me. And like, you know, I get it. Sure. Maybe there are extenuating circumstances where that stuff needs to Fundamentally, you as the founder or you even broader than the founder, the management team, there are always things that the management team can be doing at the pre-seed and seed level to enhance the position of the company. And even its most basic form of mentor, that's selling. You always need to be selling. So you talked about how you need to be working a lot in the pre-seed and seed stage. Do you think it's because that at these two stages, the growth of the company is still directly proportional to the amount of effort the founder puts in, not time, but effort? I think part of it is. And part of it also then like depends on the strategy and the type of company you are. Like I think it would be remiss for me to try and provide a kind of catch-all here. But I do think that like, you know, especially in, let's say, for instance, let's like constrain the universe here. Let's say SaaS, software as a service, right? You know, I think that for founders who are at the pre-seed and the seed working on SaaS companies, certainly like within, you know, Asia Pacific, you know, you need to be putting in a ton of effort to figuring out how you can scale your business beyond the borders here. That is like the ultimate goal. You know, Southeast Asia has yet to produce a single cloud SaaS unicorn. Why? Right? And so, you know, like there's constantly stuff you can be doing. And in fact, I find it more exciting because no one's done it before. It's almost like unpaved territory. And so I think at the pre-seed and the seed level, yeah, it is a lot about effort and especially effort then when mixed with time just means that you're able to, you know, outmaneuver so many others. And you know, eventually the plan will be that you can outmaneuver international competitors in more developed markets like the US and Europe, who, you know, have a lot of benefits compared to APAC. I'm curious about running ClickIt. In terms of when we last covered you on Backscoop, I think it was much more focused on like the restaurants that you work with. I checked out your website recently, and while you still work with restaurants, I think it seems like you expanded a bit more to just being a service for businesses in general. Was this like a deliberate thing you wanted to do from day one, or was this like a slight pivot into expanding the kind of people that you can work with? I think it's a good question. Like, I don't think it was anything in my vision from day one, nor do I actually think it was really a pivot. Well, what I actually think it was a function of market forces. You know, we have clients inbound us every single day with strange and unusual use cases. Example, we had a dairy farm in the Philippines inbound us to work out how they could potentially use our software to manage like large incoming dairy orders as part of a broader supply chain initiative and get those to restaurants and bars and hotels in Manila. You know, I think for us, it was more about, you know, 
our software is it's a vertical operating system for merchants Asia. and you know the equivalent that we have today is a business like toast in america and i think toast is a phenomenal business and you know who will become the toast for for asia pacific right i think that's like a big question you know and so for us it was more about customers with genuine problems and worries and angst coming through to us and saying hey you know my buddy or my friend they own a restaurant they've been using your software i checked it out it's great i'm wondering can i try it can i use it and so you know for us we we just thought why not right i think it forces us to think a little bit more broadly but then obviously you end up in this position where you know you need to trade off specific product builds right and that's where you know going way back earlier into our conversation around you know companies and and culture you know ruthless prioritization you know we have a value seek truth and so i think one of our values you know like seek truth what it really means is about asking the hard questions and making sure that we are being ruthless in how we prioritize things and scale you know relative to problems because yeah to your point if you decide to pivot and you're you're just going to make software for the world you know you'll have a never ending laundry list of features right but if you can work out there are kind of like in amongst certain industries which may be uniform then that's where you can really unlock opportunity and magic and you know peter teels talked about this at length he's talked about you know some of the biggest magic especially with with software as a service companies it's it's about bundling complexity into a platform or an ecosystem and if you can do that and you can do that at scale on price you can just win and you can create a monopoly And so you know I think a lot about that and I also think a lot about my time at Gojek where I saw the super app emerge and you know I distinctly recall days at Uber when Gojek was my competitor you know Travis and the management team at Uber laughing at Gojek for having all these different weird products but the reality is now you look at the Uber app today it's a lot closer to Gojek right they offer food they offer rides they offer mobility like micro mobility services right so you know I think it's all about can you solve problems you know in a way that is like scalable and wide but at the same time you know can you be ruthless in prioritization to hit the mark so earlier you mentioned bundling complexity so could you share a little bit about what that actually means if you need to mention how it works at clickit that could be helpful too or if you have some other example i think i'm just curious to see like what is bundling complexity like in action in a business sense yeah for sure so you know bundling complexity i think is a rule that broadly speaking needs to apply in apac but rarely in practice does it and you know what's somewhat problematic you know silicon valley i think is you know it's a phenomenal place right it is you know quote unquote the birthplace of the modern sort of tech mindset but it is very very american and you know one of those sort of guiding principles you know very y combinator very kind of silicon valley is you know startups need to focus they need to focus deeply build for one tiny very small speckled thing and find people who love that thing or need that problem solved and just build in that and then you know get them to pay for it and then slowly slowly expand right and unfortunately I don't think that logic holds true in certainly not in Southeast Asia but also North Asia as well like broadly APAC I don't think that logic holds true. I think that that what you need to do in APAC to succeed and win is you need to bundle complexity rapidly at a very affordable price point and you need to expand and prove that you can go to multiple markets very very quickly early. And if you can do that then I think you're a fantastic business. and if you can't do that that i think you'll constantly be relegated or you'll be chained to your home market and you know we've seen this time and time again i think gojek is probably the most famous example they have a quote unquote international business but if you were to look at the proportion of business that is indonesia versus rest of world it is fundamentally an indonesian company right and so you know when i think then about bundling complexity you know one thing i think we need to to sort of encourage founders in this region to do more of is you know if you are solving a problem for a market does that problem exist in other markets before you start building for it or is this a philippines problem or is this a thailand only problem you know we'll use an example that's definitely a lot closer to home for you you know let's take for instance the BIR right so the bureau of inland revenue in the philippines which is the body that that governs tax 
you know, you might build a fantastic startup that knows how to work exactly with the BIR process, right? It might be able to do all the filings, everything, you know, it automates it all. It's fantastic. That's a great product. And I'm sure there's lots of people in the Philippines that would love to pay for that product. But then what are you going to do when you go to Thailand? Mm-hmm. Are you going to have to build a whole nother tax engine? Yeah. Really similar to how the BIR works, you mean? Exactly. And so then you sort of go back to the drawing board and you think, hmm, well, maybe I can go, you know, further up the funnel and build a, a universal quote unquote tax payload. Maybe there's something like that, right? Which then can be translated to all the different local tax bureaus. Maybe that's a good startup, right? But I feel like this kind of second order thinking doesn't happen enough in this region. And so we end up with a lot of companies that are fantastic in their home markets, but totally unable to scale in any other country, right? And, you know, the biggest example of this, Amanda, is how many tech companies do you know from Southeast Asia that have successfully broken into the North Asian markets, i.e. Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea? Not many. I think I can only think of a handful (laughs) from the hundreds that we read about. Yeah. Exactly. And even then, you know, that's like a really, it's tough. So, you know, I think back to your original question, bundling complexity, what does that look like in practice? It looks like a lot of second order thinking. And, you know, again, connecting this back to the narrative, which I've played back for you, you know, during this interview, I think law school taught me a lot of that, right? Because in law, you know, when you're told to assess a problem, you deconstruct the problem down to its most fundamental essential truths. You rip everything else to pieces and then you build up from there. And so, you know, I think that second order thinking about, okay, Like, can I actually solve a problem like this in other markets at scale? Will this work? Will people pay for it? I think that these are big, big questions that more and more founders probably need to ask themselves. Is it only about will this also work in other markets or do you also mean bundling complexity in the the sense of will this also work for other customer segments in the same country? Yeah. So I think you've definitely nailed that one. I think it's something we also think about. And I think that really, you know, for us, our our core segment at the moment is F&B and sort of the natural extension from F&B are then bars and hotels. You know, I think about broader retail cases, you know, do I get into fashion? Do I get into, you know, clothing or books or toys or any of these other different things? I think like those things only make sense when there's enough signal, right? And so, yeah, when we do talk about bundling that complexity, it's like, you know, we build these products and these feature sets as requested and needed by our our customers or prospective customers, you know, and then we can soft check some of these other segments in the market and see if that stuff's interesting to them. Is that how you would prioritize what to build as well? Like asking your current customer segment if you find this valuable and then also double checking if other maybe more adjacent customer segments would be interested? Or is that something outside of like how you prioritize products? It's probably more like a secondary thing, right? So like from a primary level, the thing we would do first is check multiple countries. So we would say, hey, the problem statement is X, you know, and then we would pick up the phone to Indonesia, pick up the phone to Philippines, pick up the phone to Thailand and ask the question, hey, is this relevant for your market? And, you know, if enough of those boxes are then ticked, then we'll proceed to prioritize. You know, if there are in that discussion, though, what might be interesting is that, for instance, let's say Indonesia says, hey, problem X is affecting us, but also it's affecting our ICP plus one segment, ICP being ideal customer profile plus one segment, meaning the circle just outside our ideal customer profile. Then it might become also more interesting and we can start asking more broadly, hey, Philippines, can you go ask ICP plus one in your country whether or not this is a product that would like interest them? So I'll give you an example. Let's like ground the hypothetical because otherwise we're we're talking like uh you know Socratic academics here. So example was, you know, reservations, I think is a key piece of tooling that restaurants across the region need. And you know, we have a lot of customers that were asking us, hey, we love your order dashboard for managing all of our different sales channels. We'd love to manage our, our reservations as well. Slash, like, could you build us a reservations tool? So we ended up building that. And as part of that process, you know, some of the more fine dining restaurants were saying, hey, you know, we'd really like to have people, you know, give them the ability to have pre-booked packages, right? Pre-payment where they can come in Amanda, you know, they can buy, let's say you and I are going for an omakase dinner. And so, you know, it's 200 Singaporean dollars a head. They would like to collect that money up front or a percentage of that money up front. 
to prevent a no-show, right? Because maybe it's a small restaurant. So, you know, we asked around, turns out there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of customers that sort of fit the bill across different markets. And then what was interesting in Indonesia, you know, we had a client who had been engaging us specifically for kind of, you know, more sort of like table ordering, digital ordering solutions. And they said, hey, you know, do you guys have any reservations tooling? And we said, oh, it's something we're currently exploring. And they said, yeah, we actually really need, you know, prepayment features so that people can book the booths at our nightclub. Because a lot of the booth booking, you know, for private booths and seating areas or bottle service, a lot of it was happening over WhatsApp, Amanda. And there was a lot of fraud. So people were, were sending through Photoshop bank transfers to prove that they had like purchased this booth. They would turn up on the night, they would drink three bottles, they'd say, Hey, I'm just going outside for a cigarette, and then they would disappear. And so, yeah, it was really fascinating. And so from that conversation then that we had in Bali. I was at the time I was on a trip in Taipei. I was able to connect to some nightclub owners out there and say, Hey, is this also a problem? They said, Yeah, it is. It's a big problem. We actually don't have a way of, of really doing any of these kind of prepaid bookings across, you know, these different nightclub venues. It's really problematic. Something like we're trying to find a solution for, but we can't really find one that's going to work locally. So, you know, that was an example where the complexity came out from some of these ICP plus one customers, this kind of customer segment. And then equally, we were able to then push it up the stream to this then kind of like country by country sort of logic and say, okay, wow, it's actually affecting, you know, lots of different people in lots of different places. So it seems like something we should think about prioritizing. Well, thanks for taking me through how you guys prioritize product. I think it was really interesting to see all the different levels of like what you check and who you call at what stage. And is this like, this is the actual story of how the reservation product got shipped out, right? Yeah, effectively. Okay, so cool. I think I have one last question about you before we end this. And this is a question that I ask everyone on the podcast. And I don't know if this will be a hard question for you, but outside of work and strictly outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? Hmm. I know we talked a lot about how you spend a lot of your time on your work, right? So I'm not sure if this is a question you can answer, but if there is anything, what would it be? If there's nothing, then <laughs> I think we all know why. I think one thing I'd like to achieve in my personal life is I'd like to do a lot more building of my hard skills and not in the sense of like coding or like technical Math. skills, but like, yeah, not not even that. Just like I'll frame it up like this, Amanda. You know, before I started Click It Up Kitchen in Australia, and that's how I really got familiar with the problem space that I'm building in because you know, I love food delivery and and I loved it so much that I wanted to feel what it was like to be an operator. And so, you know, as part of that process, I tried to let my buddies let me into their kitchens and they all politely told me to leave. And so I had to build my own kitchen. And as part of that process, you know, I converted a commercial unit into an actual delivery kitchen. And that was just, you know, I think back on that time and it's as fun as building ClickIt. You know, I was plumbing things, tiling things, concreting things, wiring things. I was using my hands and building something and see it take shape in the real world. And I think like, you know, tech and tech products are really cool. You know, I am so fortunate to be in this role, to have such an amazing team and to support hundreds, if not thousands of customers, you know, who use our product every single day. And that's like a feeling like no other. But I think there's also something special about using your hands. And so one thing that I'd like to achieve, like in my own personal life is, you know, I'd love to be able to, you know, build my own house or like build something, something that was uniquely mine in the same way that I've been able to build and contribute to ClickIt. I think that's something which I I would love to do and something which I take a lot of pride in. Is building your own house like the bucket list idea or is it just anything or continuously building different physical things? I think just continuously building. And that's probably a good way to summarize and end the, the interview, Amanda. I think, you know, if you were to, define me really in two words. It's continuously building, whether it's me building myself personally and, and overcoming things, whether it's me building the company or whether it's me building things in the physical world. I love to build. And, you know, maybe that was my childhood, too much Lego. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's something which I love to do. And there's not a day that goes by where I get sick of it. So, yeah, I think continuously building is a good way to frame it. I know I said that would be the last question, but I have to ask you one last question after this. And what part of building makes you the most excited? Is it the feeling of continuous progress 
Is it the trial and error or is it something else entirely? I think the cynic in me would tell you that, you know, even if you're building, it's a lot like this kind of, you know, the curse of Sisyphus, right? That you're rolling this boulder up a hill and it's not all going to matter at the end of the day. But I think for me, the reason I love continuously building is that, you know, it's kind of a bit like the closest thing we have to magic, right? Building lets you change the way reality is. And whether that's a tech product or whether that's a small house on the prairie, it allows you to, to leave something that you created, right? With, with your mind and with your hands. And I think for me, that's, this sounds very kind of like, like, you know, preachy, but it really is, I think, part of just being human, right? The ability to create and to do. And so, yeah, that getting close to magic feeling for me is just why I love continuously building so much. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really enjoyed this chat. I really appreciate the honesty you had, not just in, you know, the way that you think about how you're building your startup or the, well, what might, some might call the contrarian beliefs you may have, but also about like your personal journey. I think everyone who would listen to this would really appreciate how much you went into the details as well. No, I think it's my pleasure and I'm always happy to, you know, where I can side and, and back to the fantastic community that you're cultivating, Amanda. The last final sort of like parting note I'll leave with is that, you know, if there are founders out there who are struggling with, you know, issues or anything really in particular, please don't hesitate to just reach out. Connect with me on LinkedIn or I'm sure you'll be able to trace my my email or my WhatsApp somewhere. I'm always happy to spend the time and, you know, be a shoulder and, and someone who'll hear you out. Yeah, we'll add that in the description so everyone knows that you're open. But yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Awesome. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays, everyone. And thanks for joining us for the first year of One More Scoop. We'll be back in January. Take care and see you soon.